0: hello and welcome back to new books in the american west a channel on the new books network of podcasts i am stephen hausman i'm an assistant professor of history at the university of saint thomas in minnesota and i will be your host for today's interview and today i'm very excited to be joined by jessica kim dr kim is an associate professor of history at california state university at northridge and is the author of Imperial Metropolis, Los Angeles, Mexico, and the Borderlands of American Empire, 1865-1941, to which came out with the University of North Carolina Press in 2019. Thank you for joining me on the show today, Jessica.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Will is like to begin on the show by just hearing a little bit about the author uh, themselves. So just tell us a bit about yourself. What is your background? What path did you take to becoming a historian? What got you interested in the field?
1: So, um, I didn't realize this until I was finished writing the book, but I think the kind of the seeds of the ideas that I explore in the book were planted pretty early. My mom is a fourth or fifth generation Californian. Um, she is not a historian but has always had a lot of interest in and passion for local and regional history. So I sent, spent a lot of my childhood uh, sort of following her around various historical sites in California, including the missions. And so I think that sparked an interest in me in um, in the past that I saw around me, where I was living and growing up in California. And then uh, my dad is also the product of American Empire. He was, uh, he's half Korean, half white. He his father was a fairly high ranking official in the U.S. Army stationed in Korea just prior to the break to the outbreak of the the Korean War, and uh, his mother was a Korean woman who worked for uh, as a secretary for the U.S. Army, and then she ends up losing she lost her life as a result of that conflict. So I think. I had the history of California and the West and then the history of American empire were just things that grew up, were in my household as I was growing up. And so I thought about, I guess, from a young age, not in an academic sense, but in a familial one. Um, yes, yeah, so and those I think those family stories really informed my interest in the past.
0: Yeah, I ask this question to all of my guests, and pretty often I get answers like that where, you know, we become interested in the things that are around us first. And when, you know, you, you you kind of grow up and you start to wonder, why is the world that I grew up in, why is it like this? And next thing you know, you're writing a book about the history of California, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So what got you interested in the topic of this book specifically? Why Los Angeles and why the relationship between Mexico and American empire during this time period, kind of the late 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century?
1: So, well, related to the the topic we were just talking about, interested in, you know, historians sort of realizing that our interest in the past comes from place, from personal family histories. Um, I have always been intrigued by the history of where I'm at. And so after college, I wasn't in graduate school yet, but I really wanted to learn how to speak Spanish. I had worked with nonprofits and labor organizations in Los Angeles, and I there was a language barrier that I hoped to overcome. So I lived in Central America for about a year. And while I was there, I wanted to understand the past of this place that I was living in. And so I started reading a lot about American Empire, both formal and informal, and its impact on Latin America. So I had that in my head. Uh, when I came back, I worked in nonprofit workers' rights, labor organizations in Los Angeles. And so as I started, as I was working, I had an increasing interest in urban history and the history of Los Angeles and understanding, trying to understand this place in which I was now living and working. And eventually I decided to go back to graduate school and pursue a PhD. And so I had these sort of two interests. One, American empire in Latin America and then to urban history in the history of Los Angeles. And I didn't particularly expect them to intersect. It's not something I anticipated. In fact, when I started graduate school, I think I was going to write about freeways in Los Angeles or something like that. Uh, but as I read more deeply on both topics, American empire in Latin America, the history of Los Angeles, American urban history. And then as I started going into the archives and tracing There's been quite a bit written about the role of boosters, these fairly well-to-do Anglo-American, mostly men, who were so instrumental in making Los Angeles grow as a city. Uh, I was sort of interested in them, and so I started reading their papers and going to the archive and finding their letters and thinking about what they were doing. And I kept coming across, uh, probably across at least a dozen or so of these these boosters coming across mentions in their papers of investment projects, um, ties that they had to Mexico in the late 19th and early 20th century. And so I sort of I followed the archives and um, you know, first in Los Angeles and California, and then, you know, I could see who they were writing to in Mexico. So then when I got some research funding and was formulating this project, followed those letters and those relationships across the border and into archives in Mexico. And actually, I have a very fond or this light bulb moment of sitting in the National Archive in Mexico City, which is enormous, um, a really interesting place to work because it's a 19th century prison that has a panopticon, (laughs) Uh, but sitting in the National Archives in Mexico City and finding box after box um, of archived letters, proposals written by Los Angeles based investors between the 1890s and the 1920s uh, addressed to the Mexican federal government and and I guess realizing at that moment that this was a, a viable project that tracing these financial and investment relationships between Los Angeles and Mexico that there was the record there.
0: And obviously, you did a t- this. This book is extremely well sourced, and it's obvious that you did a lot of, uh, you know, really intensive research to, to as you said, trace these these lines of of finance and and investment and capital. But while I was reading it, at the same time, I couldn't help but thinking like. The way that you are are writing this and pointing this out, it seems so obvious and so apparent. I can't believe that no one has pointed this out before. It's one of those rare books that make you makes you feel like you are being let into a secret that was kind of hiding in plain sight. I don't know if it felt that way when you were doing the research, but that's how it came across to me, certainly.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um, you know, we're, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Eh? <laughs> um, so I don't want to claim too much originality there, but I think um, one development in the field of Western history that really helped me start thinking this way was the, you know, really fantastic literature on the um, Spanish fantasy past and the the impact that Spanish and Mexican history had on early Anglo settlers in California and the West, and then the ways that they went on to try to capitalize on those histories. So those connections were being made um, in terms of I guess, cultural history and thinking through tourism and how is California and the West, how were they marketed as tourist regions at the end of the 19th century? And I think that's one of the things that helped lead me in the direction of, well, if there's this cultural relationship, uh, I mean, it was awfully often appropriative, but <laughs> there's this deep cultural history and overlap between Spanish, Mexican, and Anglo, Los Angeles and California. You know, are there also financial And overlap there as well.
0: So, I want to ask you to do something that's not going to be easy, but can you give us just sort of a brief thumbnail history of the city of Los Angeles over the course of the period (laughs) that you cover? Because (laughs) You know, as, as you say in the book, this is a, a moment, a, a long moment. You cover, you know, almost a century's worth of history in this book, but it's a moment of really incredible change for this city. So I know the idea of a quick history of LA is not an easy thing to do, but how did it grow and how did it change over the period that, that you're covering?
1: Sure. I mean, it's sort of a question of how long you want this episode to be, but <laughs> I'll try to do it briefly. Uh, you know, there are a couple of, important I mean, there are many important works on the history of Los Angeles, but uh, a couple that I think are key here. And One is a really important essay written by the late historian Louise Puebles. And she has this wonderful essay. The title is something like Los Angeles was born global. And she makes the argument that since its founding in the late 18th century, although it was small and you know an outpost of the Spanish empire that it has always been globally tied, particularly through trade, And, you know, one of the early industries in Southern California was the hide and tallow trade from cattle that were raised in southern ranches in Southern California. And um, so Los Angeles, although small in the early or late 18th and early 19th century, was was tied globally through commerce and trade. Uh, and then the famous historian of Los Angeles, Carrie McWilliams, said that the history of Los Angeles, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries, is the history of its booms and just sort of this continuous history of booms. So, <laughs> with those kind of two ideas in mind, um, you know, as I said, Los Angeles is a pretty small place. When it becomes part of the United States as a result of the Mexican-American War, there are just about 1,500 people living in Southern California. Um, two decades later, it's just around 5,000. So population growth was relatively slow, um, as was, I guess, economic development during during that period. Things really start to take off in terms of city growth, economic growth through the region, when railroads finally connect LA to, first to San Francisco, and then to the East Coast in the 1870s. And so that links the California and the Southern California economy to the larger Gilded Age economy of the United States. And then it also makes travel so much faster and easier and so we see a continuous influx of mostly anglo-american migrants coming from the eastern parts of the nation and pouring into southern california and after the arrival of the railroads southern california also becomes one of the most heavily marketed regions of the country there were um, intense and um, intentional uh, advertising campaigns to entice people to come and those were often run by many of the same people that I talk about in the book who were relatively early Anglo settlers in Southern California who bought property here who want to see the value of that property increase who've invested in railroads and hotels and are trying to convince people to come and they're very successful at it and so those booster campaigns not only bring tourists and settlements Tourists and settlers, but also um, infre- increased industries, infrastructure, um, things like agriculture, eventually film. Um, and then we see parallel to the economic growth, uh, growth in the city's population. So I think it's just over 10,000 in 1880, about 50,000 in 1890, and then by 1940, so just on the verge of World War II, the city reaches. One and a half million, and in addition to that, growth being fueled by boosterism and pretty explicit desires on the part of early Anglo settlers to make Los Angeles grow, uh, kind of, I mean, they kind of—I mean—they conjure a big city out of a very small place <laughs> over the course of forty or so years. Um, I, they also lobbied very hard for state and federal investment in the region, so. Los Angeles gets a deep water port in the 1890s as a direct result of Angelino boosters relentlessly lobbying the federal government to pay for, because Los Angeles doesn't have a natural deep water port, so they needed funds, a lot of funds to dig out a deep water port in Southern California and they get that money from the federal government. Um, And then development, infrastructural development as well, there's I think probably everybody knows not a lot of water in Los Angeles or Southern California. And to support urban growth and the growth in population, they had to secure water. And so that comes through things like the Los Angeles aqueduct, um, getting water rights to the Colorado River, et cetera. I think Con- maybe, oh, go Sorry, keep going. Oh, no, no, no I'm no. And then, you know, so we see this big city, it's eclipsed by World War II, Los Angeles has eclipsed. San Francisco and San Diego in terms of population, in terms of size and scope of the economy. Um, And World War II, we also see major investments on the part of the federal government in Los Angeles, and that fuels the post-war growth of the city.
0: And I was just going to say that you use the word conjure to describe this period in Los Angeles's history. And I think it's a really good word for thinking about how Los Angeles goes from, you know, being, you know, maybe a, a large spot on the map, but nonetheless, just a spot on the map to being, as you say, the second or third most important city in the United States. Conjure is just a really good word for that.
1: And I think it's, I, I do, I'm not the only one who's written on that, but I do think it's true. If you look at if you look at Los Angeles, there are not a lot of natural resources that would clue you in at the end of the 19th century to thinking that this will be a big, important metropolitan region, right? There's no water. Uh, there's no, as late as 1870s. There's really no industrial output. And if you compare that to what was happening in Chicago during the same period, it's sort of, it's, it's surprising. What happens in Los Angeles is somewhat surprising, and it is the result of extremely aggressive growth policies on the part of regional elites
0: and historically how has los angeles looked to the south or maybe a better way of putting that is what is la's relationship to mexico and to the southern borderlands been how has border crossing in terms of people and in terms of capital and in terms of all the things that cross borders how has that been a part of la's history for for a very long time yeah,
1: I'm sure that's a great question um well you know it was since its inception, since its founding, a part of the Spanish Empire. um, Angelinos, prior to the Mexican-American War, looked to Mexico City uh, and the Spanish Empire for directives. Those were the governing bodies, Uh, not without conflict. Uh, There was most certainly conflict between Mexican elites. It was... Descended of Spanish settlers in California and then once Mexico achieves independence, um, there was certainly conflict between um, settlers in Southern California and like, these more imperial and national capitals. But either you know, the city has long been oriented south and you know, politically, economically tied to the borderlands region and to Mexico. And I think, you know, historians like, markers. And so you know we, we look back and we think about the Mexican American War and then we tend to say, okay, well the war happened. Um, the United States carves off the northern portion, northern third of Mexico, becomes incorporated into the United States, a border is drawn. And then sometimes we allow those that drawing of a border to blind us to the continued relationships that exist across that border. And that's been you know one of the important parts of borderlands histories over the past 20 years is saying, well, you, know, you have borders to mark sovereignty, but relationships extend and are, are maintained across them. And what do those look like? And so I think although there is a border drawn between the United States and Mexico and kind of bisects Los Angeles from its traditional orientation towards Mexico, um, but those those relationships and ties remain strong. And so part of the project of the book was was investigating those and um, thinking about what they look like in the late 19th and early 20th century. I, think and, I Yeah, no, keep going, sorry. And uh, one of the key, so in addition I, oh, I really, um, in the book focus on the financial and economic ties between the two, between Los Angeles and Mexico. I The two regions have also been bound by labor, by workers. And by migratory circuits that laborers have been uh, traveling for 150 years. So, the kind of seasonal nature of agricultural work in California and northern Mexico has meant that for generations, for decades, there's been this movement of workers from northern Mexico through California all the way up the West Coast and then back again. And those date back to the Mexican American War.
0: And that, that was my my next question was about capital and about capitalists. And one thing that, that I, I've learned, you know, in reading books by people like, like Richard White and, and William Deverell and your book as well, is there's a lot of interesting characters in California and Los Angeles history and interesting characters with a lot of money. And this book is also filled with similar people like that. I mean, you talked about the boosters earlier, for instance, but... How do they play a role in the story that you tell here? How do people like C.J. Shepard or Ignacio Sepulveda, how do they see the relationship between Mexico and Los Angeles and how does their status as these kind of like wealthy industrialist types, how does that shape their vision for Los Angeles and Mexico together?
1: Sure, I guess I'll just start by describing who Shepard was and then talk about this broader worldview that was pretty dominant amongst white elites in Southern California in the late 19th century. Uh, CJ Shepherd was a fruit importer. I believe he had citrus groves in Southern California, but then he also starts to cultivate and trade in citrus uh, grown in Northern Mexico. And he, although there were dozens of them, but he he becomes part of this extremely vocal campaign in the late 1880s, 1890s, to convince the Mexican government, the Mexican federal government to place a Mexican consulate in Los Angeles. And so Shepard and others like him um, through the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce and other business organizations, they, they lobby hard for this consulate. They are bombarding President Porfirio Diaz, the president of Mexico at the time, to open up a consulate in Southern California. And he was, you know, figures like Shepard were just one, um, I think maybe a really well-known colorful iconic figure in LA uh, who also shared this this kind of obsession with tying Los Angeles to Mexico was Harrison Gray Otis. He was the publisher of the Los Angeles Times. He bought almost a million acres of land in Baja California. He forces a close personal relationship with Diaz and which Diaz was fairly open to because he believed in foreign investment to sh- he believed it would help shape and grow Mexico's economy during this period. And there are actually quite a few personal letters between Harrison Gray Otis and Porfirio Diaz. And Otis says over and over and over, either in editorials he wrote himself in the Los Angeles Times or you know, he commissions pieces from his writing staff that say and that encapsulate their, their vision for the relationship between Los Angeles and Mexico, so that Los Angeles will be an important urban city. We are determined to see it become that. In order for Los Angeles to become an important trade and economic center, and I think they really had their eye on places like Chicago, we need tributary territories, and that's the term they actually used in the um, in a number of LA Times articles. So, areas surrounding Los Angeles will be tributary to us. Uh, these are regions where we can invest money, mostly in extractive industries, and. Sort of the capital that comes out of those industries will help fuel urban growth. And yes, we see the Inland Empire and Northern California counties and even maybe some Western states as tributary to Los Angeles, but we also see Mexico, particularly Northern Mexico as within the orbit or the, the imperial sphere of our city. And so the mindset was quite imperial and they they said that pretty explicitly that Los Angeles We are determined that it will be an economic success. It needs essentially an empire to make it become that, and that empire will extend beyond the border. So
0: a turning point in this book is um, in 1910, which is the beginning of a decade's worth of revolution in Mexico. And as you say in the book, you have this great line where you say um, Los Angeles may not have been on the tongues of the revolutionaries, but Los Angeles was nonetheless a crucial factor in creating the conditions that made revolution viable. And I'm paraphrasing there, you write it better than I just said it. But it's a really it's a really useful line for thinking about the role that L.A. plays in Uh, uh, Mexican politics in this time period. So what's the connection here?
1: Right. And before I answer that, actually, I wanted to go back to you bringing up Sepulveda in your your previous question. Because he is such an interesting person. And I think if there are graduate students listening to this right now, there is a book to be written about figures like Sepulveda. So Ignacio Sepulveda was a Californio. He was, um, and the Californios were an elite class of Mexicans, landed, they received land grants from the Spanish and the Mexican governments. Um, they really held the economic and political reigns of the region prior to the Mexican American war and then continued to wield uh, some power and influence through the 1870s and 1880s uh, when because of the influx of Anglo-Americans into Southern California, they kind of take over the economy and the politics of Southern California. But anyway, Sepúlveda so is, is such an in- interesting figure because he was an attorney And he was well to do before the Mexican-American War, Uh, had a successful law firm, had a pretty successful political career, which continues after the Mexican-American War. And then as more and more Anglo-Americans arrive in Southern California and are looking to tie their own business interests to uh, Californios who already reside in the region and who own much of the land, and then also to extend entrepreneurial or investment enterprises across the border, they often needed people who had the language skills to operate in Mexico, and then also the knowledge of Mexican law. And so Ignacio Sepulveda ends up playing that, a really important role. He, his, eventually many of his legal clients are Los Angeles based uh, investors, and uh, including the Hearsts. And um, I, you know, there's been some work done on brokers. I'm thinking of May Nye's book, The Lucky Ones, but thinking about you know, what's the role of the cultural and economic brokers in borderlands regions or in, in the context of immigration. And so I think there is a book that a graduate student should start working on right now, which is about these, these brokers and their role in Los Angeles or the greater borderlands, but fairly well-educated middle to upper class Mexicans and Mexican Americans who facilitated financial and economic relationships across the US Mexico border.
0: And that brings us also to to the question of of revolution once once again. So how is Los Angeles a crucial role in and and you know people like Sepulveda and like Shepard how are they these kind of crucial players in this larger story about Los Angeles affecting Mexican politics and economics and society? Sure.
1: Uh, I think, start with a little bit of a broader response to that question. And that's just the uh, tremendous role that foreign investment plays, or played in Mexico at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And I mentioned earlier that this is the era of the Porfiriato, uh, almost 40 years of of rule under Mexican President Porfirio Diaz. And he has this economic worldview and, and perspective that For Mexico's economy to advance, he needs to invite in foreign investors. And so he travels to places like New York. He sends, I don't think he ever comes to Los Angeles, but he sends high ranking Mexican federal officials to Los Angeles. They actually stay with Harrison Gray Otis in his house in Hancock Park, uh, uh, in MacArthur Park in Los Angeles. And so, so Diaz invites in foreign investors. And by the time the Mexican Revolution breaks out in 1910, foreign investors owned well over 30 percent of Mexican land. Americans alone owned, I think, 27 percent. Something like 90 percent of Mexicans, Mexico's agricultural communities had lost land as part of this process of foreign investment and privatization. So the, yes, Mexico's economy grew, but that wealth is concentrated at the end of the 19th century in fewer and fewer hands. And so that, that, that's prime for a social revolution. And for Americans, you know, Angelenos were not the only ones investing south of the border. There was a lot of money flowing from Boston, New York, into economic ventures in Mexico, including rail lines. Almost all of Mexico's rail lines at the end of the 19th century had been built by American companies and financed by American financiers. So Angelinos were by no means alone in this process, but I was, and I was actually able to find this through after the revolution ends and foreign properties are expropriated by the Mexican state. Hundreds of Americans file claims against the Mexican government. And uh, those files are all in the National Archives and Records Administration in Maryland. And so you can actually, I was able to go through for all of the Americans who'd filed claims that they lost property property to expropriation in Mexico following the revolution. And I was able to calculate that actually Americans, inv- or, excuse me, Angelenos invested more per capita south of the border than any other part of the United States. So there were investors in Kansas. There were many investors in New York, but if you look at kind of per capita, Angelenos had invested more than any other, uh, any other city or region of the United States. So they, you know, Angelenos felt like they had a lot tied a lot of their finances tied up in Mexico and then there was just a lot of there was a lot of border crossing you know it was relatively open I mean especially for Americans and so there were a lot of Angelinos who were hired by investors kind of middle managers and who were sent down to manage investment properties in Mexico and they're living in Mexico as the revolution breaks out and is unfolding and they're kind of the, the front lines of this Los Angeles empire in the context of revolution. And they write back to their employers in Southern California, reporting on being targeted because they are Americans, being targeted because they are representatives of these investors in Los Angeles. Uh, I tell the story in one chapter of William Wyndham, who was a resident of Pasadena, a wealthy suburb of Los Angeles. He gets hired to oversee a ranch on the west coast of Mexico he uh, is continually targeted by Mexican revolutionaries because he's this middleman of empire and he ends up losing his life as a result but you know in letters that he and others in similar positions wrote home they're saying things are really bad for Americans we're likely going to lose control of our properties and please implore the federal government in the United States to do something about this. And they're writing home to figures, influential, wealthy political figures like Harrison Gray Otis. Um, and then also uh, in the case of William Wyndham, he's writing to a man named Thomas Bard, who spearheaded drilling for oil in Ventura County, just north of Southern just north of Los Angeles, uh actually spends one term as a senator for California. So he's like, very wealthy, very well connected. And William Wyndham is writing directly to him and saying you investors in Los Angeles better do something to intervene or stop the revolution because if you don't you are going to lose everything.
0: So how close does Mexico actually get to becoming a, you know, more formal part of the American empire in the early 20th century? And you know, I was reading the book and I associate, you know, this this idea of territorial expansion into Mexico with an earlier time period. Um, So I was a little surprised to see the same kind of class of people talking about taking Mexican territory and incorporating it into the American empire pretty far into the 20th century. So how close did this, excuse me, actually get to being a reality? And in the kind of broader sense, why was this something that investors and capitalists Wanted? Why did they want the nation to the Ameri- to the, the south of the United States? Why did they want it to become, in their words, like Cuba and the Philippines?
1: Well, you know, if Los Angeles based investors had had their way, uh, the United States would have fully occupied Mexico in the nineteen teens and governed it as Cuba and the Philippines were being governed by the United States at that time, essentially as at a colony. Um, and they lobby hard for this. Uh, it's in part, I mean they wanted to protect their extensive investment properties in Mexico. They They know that the Mexican Constitution is being rewritten as the revolution or the violent phase of the Mexican Revolution comes to a close. Uh, Mexican revolutionaries are rewriting the Mexican Constitution and they're, which was finished in nineteen seventeen, and they're particularly concerned with article twenty seven of the Mexican Constitution, which said that, foreign-owned properties could be expropriated in the interest of the nation by the Mexican federal government. Well, Of course, this, this is reprehensible, unacceptable to American and Los Angeles-based investors. And they were well aware of the history of American foreign interventions, particularly in Latin America, on the part and in the interest, on the part of the U.S. state, but in the interest of foreign investors. And so they pointed not only to Cuba and the Philippines, but also to the Dominican Republic, to interventions in Panama, in Nicaragua, and make the case to Wilson, Woodrow Wilson in the 19-teens, that um, there's significant American investment in Mexico, that that is on the verge of being expropriated by the Mexican state, that the United States has invested dozens of times in Latin America and around the globe in the interest of investors. So why on earth can you, Woodrow Wilson, not do that in Mexico? And they do this through this really interesting organization. It's founded by Edward Doheny, who's an Angelino, was the largest independent oil producer in the early part of the 20th century in the world. He's based in Los Angeles, but then has drilled extensively for oil in Mexico. And he and a number of other investors in Los Angeles come up with the idea for this lobbying campaign. And so they found this organization called NAPAR, National Organization for the Protection of American Rights in Mexico, because they know Article 27 is being drafted and they want to counter it. And they pour hundreds of thousands of dollars into this organization. Um, I found reference to it being the most well-funded lobbying campaign in the United States up until that point. And the whole goal of that organization was to lobby the Wilson administration to invade Mexico and to occupy it and to either rule it directly or at least install somebody at the executive level of Mexico who would be sympathetic to foreign investors and protect private property. And so it's really it's kind of this handful of American investors spearheaded by investors in Los Angeles who were trying to dictate foreign policy towards Mexico during that decade between 1910 and 1920. And uh, in fact, they uh, annoyed Wilson so much that he makes this comment, which is great. He says, oh, he was golfing with his personal physician. And he says to his personal physician, you know, sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm president of the whole United States and not just a handful of investors of of Americans who've invested in Mexico. (laughs) Um, and, and Wilson doesn't end up you know, with the, the exception of the Pershing expedition. He does not intervene militarily in Mexico to the extent that investors want him to for a couple of reasons. There were actually, there are records that show uh, the US army was asked to calculate how much it would cost and how many military personnel would be required to do this. And it was the cost was something like two thirds of the entire military budget for a year. That would That's how much it would cost to invade and occupy Mexico. And then the personnel was like triple the number of, of, inla- of troops that we had in the US Army at the time. So it's kind of logistically deemed impossible by the US military. And then Wilson has a lot of other international demands on his mind, World War II, excuse me, World War I. Uh, so, you know, if, if investors had had their way, Mexico would look like, they would have looked like the Philippines prior to World War II. Um, but for a number of logistical and financial reasons, Wilson doesn't intervene in Mexico and leaves Mexico alone as it's re-envisioning and reformulating its government following the, the revolution. Uh, eventually, in the late 1920s, or early 1930s, the U.S. and Mexico come to an agreement. They, they established what's called the U.S.-Mexico Claims Commission, and it allowed Americans who'd lost properties as a result of the revolution and as a result of state ex- expropriation of properties to file claims. So they had to document how much their properties were worth and then to follow file claims with this joint commission to adjudicate those claims. And so then the commission with representatives from Mexico and the U.S., made estimations about the value of those properties and the Mexican government said eventually they would pay for them. Um, Those payments were spaced out over a number of decades. And in the end, it's not all of it was paid. It's not really clear how much the Mexican government actually pays. And by the time they get around to doing it, many of the original investors had died and their descendants were not all that interested in pursuing monetary reparations for lost properties.
0: So they never get particularly close to actually turning these plans into reality, but but nonetheless, we can learn something about the relationship between empire and capitalism or about the relationship between this particular class of American capitalists and their ideas about what American imperialism should look like in this time period, even if their ideas are, you know, at best, kind of a far-flung fantasy.
1: Absolutely. And you know, there's been, there's really... Great books on the role and the influence of American capitalists and investors in shaping foreign policy and the expansion of American empire during this period in in Haiti, in the Dominican Republic, in Central America, uh, in in South America. So there's, um, and I think Angelenos were well well aware of those interventions. They saw it as the role of the state to protect their, their private property, even if it wasn't within the national boundaries of the United States. And yes, yeah, I, I hope that the book contributes to that larger historical dialogue about American empire and how American military interventions and foreign policy is so often shaped by capitalist elites.
0: And one of the last chapters of the book is a really fascinating look at the connection between roads and empire. This was maybe my favorite chapter, or at least the most eye-opening chapter to me, and it was the story that I knew the least about going into it. Tell us about the International Pacific Highway and the kind of shape-shifting nature, the changing nature of this roadway, and what it tells us about the role of Los Angeles as, again, a major outpost of American imperialism looking to the South.
1: Right. So to pick up the story, you know, I was talking about the U.S.-Mexico Claims Commission. So this kind of generation of wealthy white investors in Los Angeles, they're facing loss of land. They're facing the loss of their investment properties south of the border. And, you know, they fight tooth and nail to try to hold on to those, including building relationships with uh, Mexican executives following the Mexican Revolution. So, for example, Harry Chandler is the son-in-law of Harrison Gray Otis. He is, he also, he inherits. The Los Angeles Times. He inherits that huge cotton ranch that I mentioned earlier, that was almost a million acres, and he's trying desperately to hold on to it in the 1920s. And so he actually forges this really close relationship with um, President Obregón in Mexico, and they're they're wheeling and dealing. And Obregón is considering expropriating certain American-owned properties, and he kind of dangles that over the heads of American investors, including Harry Chandler, and he says well, Harry Chandler, if you can get some investors to help develop irrigation lines and railroads in Baja, California, then maybe I'll let you keep your land. So, you know, this, the, um, the rewriting of the Mexican constitution doesn't sever the relationship between Los Angeles investors and Mexico. So they're, on the one hand, desperately trying to hold on to properties that they'd had since before the revolution. And then the other hand, sort of pivoting and thinking about, okay, if, if the Mexican state is going to take our properties or not protect them, because also there were ordinary Mexicans who were extremely frustrated with the post-revolutionary Mexican state and the kind of glacial pace at which lands were being expropriated and then given out to agrarian communities in rural Mexico. And so they began to just, they would just move on to them and say, well, this is ours now. We declare it ours, the constitution declares it ours, and we don't care if the official paperwork has gone through or not. We are taking over these American owned properties. So Angelino investors are concerned, not only about official legal policy under the Mexican constitution, but also just the, that ordinary Mexicans have said, this is ours and we're going to take it and farm it as ours. So they're, they're, and the investor class in Los Angeles is looking for ways to pivot and they, are still very much invested in the project of of Los Angeles being globally important, globally tied. Uh, They're increasingly interested in tying Los Angeles to the Pacific world and the Pacific Rim. They are looking to Mexico and beyond and other portions of Latin America, as well as Asia, China, Japan, and thinking about Pacific trade and how can we center that in Los Angeles. And so one of the ideas that they come up with is the International Pacific Highway. And so it's really interesting about this, it's a bi-national infrastructure project. What was really interesting is that these same characters who had bought properties in Mexico prior to the revolution. So it's a highway that they envision running the entire co- western coast of the Americas from the southern tip of South America up to Alaska. Um, they they think of it as a way to put Los Angeles at the center of connective infrastructure on both continents. And uh, they lobby, and this includes uh, another uh, man by the name of Henry Workman Keller, who was one of the founding directors of the uh, Southern California Automobile Association, which then becomes now what we know as the AAA. he'd also invested in Mexico. And so together with a couple of other Angelinos who invested in Mexico, they approach Mexican policymakers, particularly at the regional level. So they start conversing with post-revolutionary Mexican governors and mayors. And they sell the idea of this road as a way to connect economies. So not only to connect Los Angeles to Mexico, and not only to connect Mexico and Southern California to the whole Pacific edge of North and South America, but also as a way to support regional economic development in Mexico. And it was interesting to read the papers from this period and about this project because you know it's a, most of the road had already been completed. So most of this coastal highway had already been completed in California and North America. And so these Angelino businessmen are are trying to figure out a way to get the road built in Mexico. And they realize as a result of the Mexican revolution, that they cannot talk or tread through Mexico the way that they did before. So they shift the conversation. I think many of their aims were still the same, but they shift the conversation in Mexico to, you know, we want to support regional development. We're not going to make any money off of this directly. We are not talking about a privatized road. We just want to support Mexican states, Mexican regional governments in advancing your infrastructure And we hope that this will be beneficial for your economies. We hope to send in particular tourists from Southern California, South into Mexico to enjoy the beauty of what they described as the beauty of Mexico. And um, and they saw this as beneficial for Los Angeles because um, tourism, particularly by automobile, by the 1920s and 1930s is really important to the American Southwest. They're attracting, increasingly attracting tourists to the region, not through railroads, but through, you know, you can adventure in your own car, come enjoy what many Americans see as the exotic regions of Southern California. And while you're here, you can cross the border into Mexico and also enjoy Mexico and Mexican culture. And so they, they sell this to regional elected officials in Mexico. And eventually the, the road is, is completed in the 1950s. Um, unclear how many tourists actually utilized it. It does seem like it was pretty popular in the 1930s, in part because of prohibition. And if you're an American tourist, you could cross the border to Mexico and drink. Um, But it also becomes an artery for trade. And I think is, in some ways, predictive of the kinds of industrial development and outsourcing that occurs Beginning as early as the 1950s, and then of course accelerating through the 1960s and 1970s, so industrial outsourcing to regions outside of the United States, and then those regions being connected by arteries in the forms of roads and highways, so that um, trucking becomes a really key way of moving goods and serv- moving goods between the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and in urban centers like Los Angeles.
0: And that actually brings me to my my last question about the book, or one of my last questions about the book, which is, how much is this a story about today? And what I mean is, what is Los Angeles's role as, in sort of international capitalism, global capitalism today? And how much of that can be traced back to the story that you tell here? Is LA still an imperial city? And how is its role in American imperialism changed, or indeed not changed over the course of the the period from when you end the book up until the early 21st century
1: yeah, my thinking um, as I was writing the epilogue I was really informed about contemporary Los Angeles was really informed by the work of economic geographers and they make the argument that really 20th late 20th and early 20th century capitalism is driven by global what they term global city regions and so Los Angeles is not unique, but is I would say falls fairly falls very squarely within that term. And what they mean by it is that it's within these mega cities like Los Angeles, New York, Tokyo, London, that really decisions about 21st century capitalism are made and where capitalism in the 21st century is driven. And that those those things happen in global city regions. And I would argue yes, Los Angeles most certainly operates in that way. And I think it's rooted in the 19th century. It's rooted in the imperial visions of Anglo American boosters at the end of the 19th century that this city will be a globally important place through trade and commerce. We are going to make that happen. And that that legacy remains with us today. And I, one example that I point to in the epilogue is a very robust support on the part of Los Angeles's white elite at the end of the 19th century, or excuse me, at the end of the 20th century for NAFTA. So there's, I you know, Henry Kissinger wrote a big piece for the front page of the Los Angeles Times and said, or that the Los Angeles Times publishes, that says, absolutely, we need to, support NAFTA. This is a key trade agreement in North America. This is important for regions like the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. This is important for cities such as Los Angeles.
0: And then as we begin to to wrap up, I always like to ask sort of a bird's eye view question of the the, the guests I, I have on the show. Which is, what is one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book understanding? If someone reads this book and then is thinking about it five years down the line, or you were talking about grad students earlier, if a grad student is going to talk about it in their oral exams possibly and want to kind of summarize what the big point that you're making here is, what do you think that might be? What do you hope readers' big takeaway is?
1: Am I allowed to?
0: <laughs> you can have as many as you like, <laughs> as long as they're short.
1: <laughs> I think. Um... One is to think about scale and alternative scales in borderland studies, um, as well as in our understandings of American Empire. So I mean, one of the things that borderlands historians have been thinking increasingly about is you know we have so many important works that really center the border itself and the communities that the, the border directly bisects. But you know, if we kind of take that bird's eye view and step back a little bit, you know are there other, scales other geographies that help us understand how borderlands are organized or how power operates in borderlands regions and maybe sometimes that's driven by urban interests as in the case of los angeles and then i think the other thing is uh, increasingly considering the significance of the international or the transnational histories of cities and thinking you know when we do urban histories thinking about Maybe this comes back to my, my thoughts on scale, but thinking about cities, city growth, urban development, urban histories, as sometimes spilling out of the container of the nation state. And in what ways can we see this international and transnational connections that are centered in urban regions?
0: And then my last question, since this book has been out for a couple years now, I'm curious what you have been working on since then. What is your next project and what can we expect from you in the not-too-distant future?
1: Well, everything's been slowed down by COVID and I think that's true for everyone. (laughs) So it's been hard to get into any archives, but I have been working on an article, which I hope will become a chapter for my next book, about Gilded Age Utopian socialists who Many of them were from the American Midwest and West who lose farms or just are going under because they simply cannot compete in Gilded Age American capitalism. And so they get together and they decide that the solution to their economic woes in the context of the Gilded Age is to leave and to set up a cooperative utopian commune in Mexico. And so they buy a big piece of property and they try for about two decades to make it work. And so that's the specific piece I'm working on right now, but I am envisioning it as a part of a larger project that looks at the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and Mexico as in the minds of many diverse types of Americans, a place of escape or the alternative to what they're facing in the United States. And that those, those groups vary really widely. Um, everyone from uh, people, enslaved peoples trying to escape slavery by crossing the border into Mexico prior to the Civil War. Uh, Ex-Confederates who think that they can reconstitute slavery and slave plantations in the borderlands immediately following the Civil War. Uh, Mormons looking for ways to escape persecution on a part of the U.S. federal government in Mexico, um, this utopian socialist community that I mentioned, um, African-Americans seeking relief from the violence of Jim Crow in Mexico, um, bootleggers <laughs> looking to escape prohibition policies in the U.S., and then all the way, bring it all the way up through roughly the same period as when the um, this first book ends, World War II, but also thinking about Mexico as a place where Um, American leftists, political dissidents, artists, also escaped red-baiting and persecution in the United States.
0: I'm thinking also about a lot of the discourse in tourism when it comes to uh, places south of the United States. You know, it's a place where you can go and experience the exotic as an escape from the kind of hustle and bustle of American life, or however you want, want to frame it. That's a really interesting sounding project.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's been some great, like, really important work about exactly that. The Americans thinking of, that they can escape, I guess, in some ways, the, the stress of modern life by looking back or by visiting Mexico, which is in their minds a, a bucolic region where you, you can live at a different pace.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing that book on my shelf right next to this one. Hopefully, hopefully not too too long from now.
1: As soon as I can get into some more archives.
0: Yeah, that's that's the dream, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dr. Jessica M. Kim is an associate professor of history at California State University at Northridge. Her new book is Imperial Metropolis: Los Angeles, Mexico, and the Borderlands of American Empire 1865 to 1941, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press a couple years ago in 2019. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Jessica. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thank you.